If you watched the first debate between the two men vying to be our Prime Minister, do you remember this? Do we have a climate emergency and how serious is it? Uh, yes we do and it's very serious. Yes we absolutely have a climate emergency. Personally, what are you doing to change your lifestyle? Just a couple of quick answers Oh look, as that. a family we embraced uh, recycling some time ago, you know, a decade ago and so we work quite hard at that. I have an EV, I'm a recycler. Well, the reaction to that was... We learnt that uh, recycling apparently is the most important thing to tackle climate change, which clearly isn't true. By the time that Luxon and Hipkins both said that they recycled is <laughs> the way of fighting Crystal climate Luxon, change, I like, my heart has stopped. <laughs> Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, there's got to be more to it than recycling, right? We talked to an award-winning New Zealand climate journalist and to one of the world's top climate scientists about what you and I can really do to reduce the impact of climate change. Eloise Gibson is RNZ's climate change correspondent. I asked her if she watched the debate. I didn't, but I watched the transcription service provided by various journalists around the country and, of course, jumped to the climate change section where, to my horror, I saw that both Chris's had named recycling as one of the two things that they personally did on climate change. What do you think of that question? Personally, what are you doing to change your lifestyle? It's a dumb question, but I say that with absolutely no disrespect to the journalists who ask it, because I know that in those environments you're expected to try and get to the man behind the persona, you're expected to reveal things about who this person is, so I completely understand why they were asked to ask it. On the other hand, one of these two men is going to be leading the country in a few weeks' time, and as a climate voter, I am far more interested in what they are going to do for the country on climate change. I mean, politicians leave weird lives, right? They probably can't bike to work. You know, if they catch a train, it's probably for a photo op. They don't live kind of normal schedules. You can't just get in the bus and go to work. I mean, you could, but I'd probably rather that they spent that time in the office doing something about climate change. On the other hand, it was quite revealing because it turned out that they made a really common mistake, both of them, which is thinking that recycling is going to make much difference to climate action. You would have hoped that our two prospective leaders would be better informed. Well, what can you do personally then? What are some of the things that you would have liked to hear them say in that answer? So firstly, I'm not saying you should start putting all of your recycling in the rubbish bin. Don't take this interview as a license to stop sorting out your recycling. Recycling is largely good, but it's good for minimising waste. It's good for avoiding, you know, getting raw materials out of the ground and turning them into new products when we could just recycle old products into new products at lower energy. So recycling is, is great, but it is way, 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 you know, 60th, I believe, by some counts down the list of the things that people can personally do about climate change. And where does this come from? You say recycling 60th on the list. Which list? Various public opinion polls have been done over the years. Um, ECA has done some. Ipsos has done some. Anyone who's crunched the numbers on the typical New Zealand lifestyle comes out with transport at the top, usually diet second, followed by smaller bits and bobs. Do you want to take me through those and how they make a difference? So should we start with transport? Yeah, let's start with transport because that is the biggest. If you fly a lot for work, 
that's going to be your biggest impact. If you regularly fly overseas, that is going to be far and away the biggest thing you do. So if you can find a way to say to your boss who's like, oh, you've got to be in Wellington from Auckland for this staff meeting once a week or once a month, if you can find a way not to do that, absolutely that's the first thing you should knock off. That's for for frequent flyers. But for people who are just getting themselves around town, cycling and walking for small trips... And public transport are the two biggest things that you can do. EVs are great if you're replacing petrol and diesel trips that you have to do with an EV. That's great. But just getting us all into EVs doesn't solve congestion or the emissions cost of manufacturing vehicles. Generally speaking, uh, either cycling or walking or public transport is more efficient. Uh, And also, of course, thinking about the Chris's answers, directing funding towards that, government funding, rather than just building new roads all the time, even if those roads are for EVs, is a more efficient way typically to kind of move people into lower carbon forms of transport. Thinking about that answer that they gave, that's a huge structural issue that politicians could fix by shifting the balance of funding. So if you find, as I do, that you walk out the gate, there isn't really a a viable bus and train route for you to get where you need to go, or that your kids can't safely walk or cycle out of your gate and get to school on their own without you thinking they're going to be squished by a car. Mm. Lobbying for those things, telling your council what you need, telling politicians what you need is another huge part of it. Um, Using your voice and showing them that you want your rates or your taxes to be spent in a way that makes that easy for you. Yeah, personally, I get the bus normally to work. So I had a sausage roll for morning tea, and I did notice that uh, Jessica much did ask Chris Hipkins during the debate. Have either of you considered being vegetarian in the past? I, I think I can answer that question, Chris Hipkins, given the amount of sausage rolls I've seen you <laughs> eat over this campaign. And I had milk this morning. Well, let's, should we talk about diet? Yeah, let's talk about diet. Because depending which way you slice it, diet makes up a varying proportion of your footprint, right, your personal footprint. There's all kinds of really technical debates about how much weight to give methane from cows and sheep and other animals in our tallies of what our footprint is. But there is no doubting that beef uses a massive amount of resources uh, and water and land compared to other types of food. So it does have a higher carbon footprint or greenhouse gas footprint, we should say, to be accurate. Switching some of your beef to something like chicken helps. You know, a lot of people aren't going to be willing to go cold turkey on their animal products. Um, I like a bit of yoghurt myself. I like eggs. I eat some meat. But if you kind of look at the pyramid of the most intensive products, swapping out beef for other things and just generally bringing those products down in the mix compared to loads of plant-based foods which are really good for you anyway, is something that has an impact on the planet in general, but definitely on your your greenhouse gas footprint. The other thing that's, you know, to think about with our meat, beef and animal product consumption is that in a lot of parts of the world, people don't have access to those sorts of sources of nutrition. And as they get wealthier and become middle class, more of the global population is going to want to eat those foods 
while we have people in countries like New Zealand, Australia and the United States eating a lot more than they need for their health. So if we're going to say, you know, globally, everyone should have the choice to eat some of those foods, people in rich countries are going to, on average, need to eat less because otherwise we're just going to blow. The other thing to bear in mind is that dairy, although it's by far New Zealand's biggest industry contributing to climate change, is a lot less emissions intensive per unit of food than meat. So dairy and eggs are way down the chart. So it's okay that I had a cow's milk with my cereal? I think we can let you have that if you call the bus. Now to the home of one of the world's top climate scientists. Where's her recycling bin? (laughs) We have a a bin for food scraps and we've got two other bins for things that are recycled here and this is the rubbish bin and then there's another bin downstairs where all of our uh, plastics that are not formally recyclable go. Dr Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished scholar at the National Centre of Atmospheric Research in Colorado and an honorary academic at Auckland University's Physics Department. He's number 13 on Reuters' list of the world's top climate scientists. So, naturally, I go around his home and ask him what he's personally doing to combat climate change. When we always uh, drop those off at... uh facilities that uh, can take, uh, you know, soft plastics and so on. I see you have some uh, plastics on the, that you've just washed there. We've got a uh, um, yogurt container and a jam container. Do we want to go and recycle those? Or? Well, we are probably going to reuse those. We use them uh, to put stuff in and put them in the refrigerator. Well, that's recycling if, if, if there ever was recycling. Yes. And you can see... Uh, Lots of jars I see around the place. We use a lot of jars... What do you have downstairs? Downstairs, come and have a look. Thank you. This is where all the soft plastics and things that normally are not recyclable, but they all go in here and, uh, and we uh, find a place to get, get rid of those and hopefully get used, recycled in some fashion. Oh, do you, do you, where, do you drop them off somewhere, do you, and they get we recycled? Drop them off at the uh, countdown in Browns Bay. They uh, take those. All oh, right, yeah, soft plastics is something you don't often think of. Kevin used to cycle until he was in an accident. He doesn't own an EV, but doesn't drive too much, and doesn't eat red meat. But he spent his career researching climate change, so when he saw the leaders' debate, he wasn't too happy. The last part of the discussion was of most interest to me because it dealt with uh, climate change, but they didn't say very much, and it was very much the overall national tune Uh, associated with the need to cut emissions, and they never did address what I thought were the main issues for New Zealand with regard to climate change. So you were pretty inspired to write something after seeing that, were you? I did, yes, and uh, so I wrote it that night, and uh, it was published in Newsroom the next day or so. Um, They seemed to talk big, like Jessica Much Mackay asked them if there was a climate emergency, and they said yes. But when it came down to what they'd actually do, there wasn't much they could give us. No, well, this is the problem New Zealand has. In terms of emissions, then we've signed up to the Paris Agreement, and we've got commitments to uh, get to net zero by 2050, as a number of other countries have. 
but very few countries, including New Zealand, are taking adequate steps to really get there. But that's really the issue because there are some other countries that are expanding their emissions substantially and it really overwhelms all of New Zealand's emissions. Okay, so if we needed to actually make some pretty big changes to what we're doing in New Zealand, what do you think we should do? Well, the thing is that climate change is a long-term problem. It, it really affects the next generation and the generations beyond that. It's not something that can be solved in three years, which is what the politicians are focused on, and I think that's a big part of the problem. So climate change is a high-priority issue, but it's never the top issue. It's usually not a, among the top two or three issues even. Yeah, I mean, you have a look at cost of living. That's always the main focus when you have a look at polls. And you think climate change would be up there, but it's like way down. When we talk to people about this in the Ipsos survey, only half of people feel like climate change is going to have a direct impact on them. That seems like a really big problem. Yes, especially for individuals. But I have a different perspective as a scientist because we can see that the carbon dioxide is building up and the rates of increase in the concentrations in the atmosphere is as high as it's ever been. And there's no sign... Uh, that the Paris Agreement has had any effect in bending down the uh, rate of increase at all at this point. And mainly that's because of the increases that are occurring in, in China and India and a little bit in Russia. Those are the three where the biggest increases have occurred. Most other countries have dropped values a little bit. New Zealand has dropped their emissions a little bit in the last three years. Chris, you always talk about outcomes. Here's an outcome for you. Our emissions have gone down three years in a row. But, you know, not a huge amount. And New Zealand certainly needs to set examples. And New Zealand could do a lot more. There are many things that are going on that are often not talked about. What can we do? Well, one of the things is that all the coal that's used in Huntley, for instance, uh, there could be other ways uh, of using a certain kind of processed wood, for instance. They're experimenting with uh, this product called torrefied wood, but it's actually imported. And the thing is, there has to be a certain amount of processing to create the uh, wood pellets. You need a, a factory to actually produce these kinds of pellets, but there isn't one in New Zealand. The other thing, of course, is the longer-term perspectives on how you actually cut down on the amount of transport that is, is a big contributor in New Zealand. And so this relates to commuting. Uh, we saw big changes that could occur during the pandemic with regard to work from home. And it also relates to then mass transit and how can you cut down on the use of cars, just going back and forwards and commuting. So more efficient public transport roads? Well, yes, uh, but also there has been talk about maybe a congestion tax. Maybe we shouldn't let cars go into the uh, central city uh, without paying uh, a tax. Where do you sit on a congestion charge in our biggest city? Broadly, we're supportive, but we want to know the detail. We want to make sure it's not a tax grab.
This has been implemented in a number of other big cities like London, and it has made some uh, big changes. And it, it means that you know how you go into the city actually changes. You might go onto a bus or you might uh, go onto a small electric vehicle if those were available through park and rides or something like that. There's all kinds of ways in which this could develop, but I don't see people really talking about this because it's how cities evolve on 20 to 50-year time frames, not five to 10-year time frames. Or not three-year political term time frames. Exactly. He's also got some ideas on electricity. New Zealand is way behind in terms of the uptake of solar, rooftop solar. And uh, I've used the example of uh, Germany. Germany has about 20% less sunshine than New Zealand does because it's at higher latitudes and it's very cloudy. But the uh, per capita uptake of rooftop solar is about four times what it is in New Zealand. It sort of illustrates the point that New Zealand could do a lot more in that regard. And the argument is, of course, that solar is difficult to work with because it's only during the daytime and it's mainly in the summer that it really works well. It can be complemented by wind, and now there's some nice little rooftop wind turbines that can be uh, installed. They generate about one to two kilowatts, uh, something like that, and uh, uh, you can put two or three of them on, on the roof, and they complement solar quite well because when it's, it's not sunny, it's often stormy and the wind is blowing. Uh, but really what is needed in New Zealand is an integrated system where all of the solar and the wind, which are intermittent, are combined with hydro, and then we can use the water behind a dam as a storage system as an effective battery to save the power for when we really need it. Did you hear about Labour's solar policy the other day? It's a package um, of up to $4,000 grant to put solar panels and a battery on your house. $2,000 for the, the panels, $2,000 for the battery. That's a start, but you really need uh, a system that encourages the electric companies to form a consortium, a, a, a national approach to how you deal with the intermittency. At the moment, many of the companies, if you're going to put solar on the roof of your house, and both of my brothers have solar on the, the roofs of their house, and the electric companies actively discourage them from doing that wow. because they didn't know how to manage it. What do they do when they have too much solar? and then there's a hole. And this is why you need this integrated system. And so all of the companies have to work together in some fashion. And in particular, it take advantage of hydropower in order to use that as a battery. What's stopping us from making this change? Um, you know, making these big changes that you talk about is a, a lack of political will and hugging the centre, as they call it, is it three-year political terms where we can't do anything in them? Well, I think it's partly that, but it's more than that. I think it's lack of knowledge, it's lack of information, and this is the reason I'm talking to you here now, is to try to rectify that a little bit. So, Eloise Gibson, what's your biggest lifestyle contribution when it comes to climate change? Well, look, to not be a hypocrite, you know, about thinking this is a dumb question to ask of politicians, I've got to say the single most impactful thing I do is to write and talk about climate change all day. That has far more impact than anything I do at home. Having said that, living and breathing it, it's hard not 
to take that home into your personal life. I'm no angel. I flew to Europe this year with my kids and had an incredible time. Um, don't regret a minute of it. But we have a plug-in electric vehicle. I use public transport as much as I possibly can. I get the kids out on bikes as much as they possibly can. Diet-wise, my husband kind of helps me be better because he doesn't eat meat. Uh, the kids and I do, but you know, in a semi-vegetarian household, it's it's not an everyday thing by any stretch of the imagination. So you don't eat meat every day? Nah, probably once a week. Oh, okay. Twice in a meaty week. Do you have beef? Yep. Oh, I'd like a bit of eye fillet, but it's Yum. a treat. When I buy it, I try and buy it from good producers who I see doing good environmental projects. So I do pay attention to things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you do say that you look out for brands that support the environment. But honestly, I don't do that. When I walk into the shop, I'm most worried about the amount I'm going to spend. (coughs) You know, so it's a cost of living thing. Not all of us are so focused on that. We're focused on making sure that we don't spend too much money in the shop. I'm really sympathetic to that. And for a lot of people, it's not a choice. I mean, so many people are getting to the checkout and putting a few things back because they actually can't afford the things that are in their trolley. I completely understand that, and I guess that's why a lot of the focus does need to be on structural change that makes those choices easy and the default. Because when the easy default choice is to get into your gas guzzler or to buy the product that has a bigger impact or to say, oh, I really need this item to get to my house tomorrow, even though I don't really need it till next week, so it's going to get flowing to me in a plane. When those are all the easy default options, we are making a choice as society to structure our society so that that's what people do. So, you know, we can change those settings. Should a person feel okay, you know, if they decide to get the cheap meat and they don't really know the background of it and they haven't looked at the environmentally friendly branding and then they take the bus to work or they cycle to work or something. Is that a a good balance? I think you make the trade-offs in your life that you have to make. And and as I say, it's about making it easier for people to make more good choices. But it doesn't need to be perfect choices. Nobody's going to make the perfect choice all the time. There is no perfect choice in the society that we live in at the moment. So, yeah, of course, you know, you do what you've got to do to feed your kids. And if you also get on the bus, I think that's fantastic. But you're not wrong to point to the cost of living crisis because we saw that the emissions trading scheme settings recently, the government chose to ignore some advice from the Climate Change Commission because it would have put the prices of petrol and electricity up. And I think we're going to increasingly see those hard calls having to be made about cost of living versus getting emissions down. If we accept that we need to get emissions down, how do we cushion the blow for those who really are just, you know, buying the cheap mints because that's what they've got to do? Have you got an answer for that? I wish I did, but it's not recycling. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal. Our producers are Alexia Russell, Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. Thanks to Eloise Gibson and Kevin Trenberth. Ma Tewa.